on June 5th, 2023, Apple launched the Apple Vision Pro headset. And I'm sure you've seen a ton of coverage about this and a ton of analysis of the actual device. But the story that I want to tell today is about Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. I really think this product launch was a big turning point in his career. So we need to go back and look through his journey and understand how he got to this moment. And it's interesting to look at him because most people in tech focus on founders. And of course, he's not the founder of Apple. Steve Jobs is, and he's he has these incredible shoes to fill. But the question that I want to investigate today is, what is a founder? I, I keep thinking about this. Like if you showed a random person who didn't know anything about technology, the keynote speeches from all the big tech CEOs. So you got Satya Nadella with Microsoft, Sundar Pichai from Google, Andy Jassy from Amazon, Tim Cook from Apple, and Mark Zuckerberg from Meta, Facebook. Like, do you think that they could pick out the founder CEO? Because only Mark Zuckerberg's the founder CEO of one of the big tech companies these days. And I'm not sure that they could, but I think that there's still something interesting to understand about how Tim Cook has led this second era of Apple. You know, he's more than a decade into his career as a CEO of Apple, and he's having like a huge impact. Like he's created more market cap than nearly any founder CEO. Just while he's been there, I think it's gone from 300 million to trillions in market cap. So he's been incredibly impactful, but he's still very different from most founder CEOs. So that's what we're going to dive into to today. How is Tim Cook different from a founder CEO? And then what is his actual strategy for growing Apple? Because I think that there's a lot that you can learn from it. So Cook has launched a bunch of successful products, even though he doesn't get as much credit because he didn't launch the MacBook or the iPhone. But he did launch AirPods and the Apple Watch, which have both become multi-billion dollar businesses. I think they're both doing almost $10 billion, actually. And the Apple Vision Pro is kind of a different device and people are now obviously speculating, like, is this the next iPhone? That's always the question. People said this when the Apple Watch launched. And it doesn't actually matter all that much. There's a lot more going on with the device that we need to talk about. And it's, it's particularly interesting to look at how Cook has kind of set up Apple to take advantage of all these really, really unfair moats that can allow them to come in at the late stage after Meta's been working on this for decades at this point and come out with a product that people are saying is much, much stronger than the competition. So obviously virtual reality has gained you know, a ton of attention. Facebook rebranded to Meta just to focus on the concept and, and they take it really, really seriously. But if you go back to Tim Cook's history, you can see how he reached this current position and how he positioned Apple to kind of come in at the last second and win everything, which is very interesting. Obviously, the game's not over. We don't know that this is going to be a massive success, but all the early indications point to Apple actually having solved some key problems in virtual reality that we're going to go into. So Cook graduated. He grew up in Alabama, and he has like completely different background from most tech founders. You always hear Stanford, college dropout, not Cook. He is he is very much a, you know, straight-laced business guy. He gets a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering from Auburn University in 82, and then an MBA from Duke in 88. And 
after graduating, he goes to IBM and works there for 12 years. Like that's a pretty boring career path by most tech founder, tech CEO, disruptive innovator type archetypes. But eventually he grow he, you know, scales up at IBM and becomes the director of North American Fulfillment. And he gets his MBA at at, at Duke. And then he has a brief stint as the chief operating officer at this computer reseller called Intelligent Electronics. It's kind of a small company. But in 1997, he becomes the vice president for corporate materials at Compaq. But just six months later, he gets hired by Steve Jobs to come and join Apple. And he joins Apple in 1998, and it's a very tough time for the company. Like the company was struggling and people completely forget about this because Apple's such a dominant force these days, but Apple was not always in the dominant position. Like they did, they were second to Microsoft for a really long time. They had some cool computers, but they were kind of in a death spiral in the mid nineties. They went from $11 billion in revenue in 1995 down to less than 6 billion in 1998. And that's when Cook joins. So the company has just shrunk 50% in revenue. And that's really, really rare for these tech companies. Like we just saw a massive sell-off in the tech market. Obviously valuations went way down, but most of these companies, their revenue didn't go down by 50%. Like that's a crazy, crazy drop. But under Cook and Jobs, these guys work together and they've brought the company back bigger than ever before. So now they're doing hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue and they're 10 times the size that they were. And Cook did this in a very interesting way. Like he was much less the crazy Steve Jobs type innovator. He was much more focused on just improving Apple's logistics and reducing costs. He's just this like kind of boring business guy. But as you'll see, he really understood the importance of of letting that innovative culture continue to flourish at Apple. And this is a really important topic that we're gonna come back to as we talk about the actual headset and the technology that he, that he was able to put together for that. So early in his career at Apple, he made a couple really, really big gambles that paid off hugely. So he anticipated the importance of the flash memory market and he secured deals with a bunch of manufacturers to ensure a steady supply at reasonable prices. And this was really important because obviously the computer market was growing and if you didn't lock in a really great co contract with your manufacturer, you could be in a lot of trouble. So he also had this really interesting moment where he realized that Apple was selling a ton of their products around Christmas time, obviously. People buy these products, they want them under the Christmas tree, and it's really important that they get that they get delivered on time. And so he anticipated that there was gonna be this big crunch right around Christmas shipping time. And so what he did was he went to all the air freight providers, like all the airlines that can ship products by air, and he pre-purchased a ton of air freight and it was a huge gamble because if they didn't hit their, if there weren't, if they didn't actually sell the units, Apple was going to have to pay for all this air freight that they pre-purchased, but it worked out perfectly and they delivered and it kind of, it kind of crowned Tim Cook as this like operations and logistics God at Apple. And, and, and he was kind of seen as like, you know, a really, really talented operator from that moment forward. So in, in 2012, he takes over and obviously it's very sad because Steve Jobs had just passed, but Cook starts, you know, really focusing on breaking up some of the fiefdoms that had emerged under Steve Jobs' reign. So there were a lot of really high-powered people 
in Apple and Cook wanted to align everyone along, you know, a much more concentrated operational structure. So one of the people was this guy, Scott Forstall, who had launched Apple Maps, which was a disaster at the time. And he resigned and then became an advisor to Cook and then left the company six months later. And everyone kind of thinks now that Forstall's resignation was basically a dismissal. And it was all part of Cook's desire to reduce rivalries between executives. Like he did not want, he wanted everyone to be on the same team and he wanted there not to be these little fiefdoms where someone's going off and building one product and they're just focused on that. And you hear about this a lot at Google where there's someone off building something and they only care about their product and getting that promoted and doesn't really integrate with anything and it's a disaster. And Cook really, really wanted to focus on Apple as this major ecosystem and everyone working together kind of harmoniously. Obviously, huge, huge task at a company like Apple, but by all accounts, Cook was able to kind of achieve that. And so, you know, he, he, he was really, really successful post this post taking over. And of course he doesn't get a lot of credibility credit here because Steve Jobs was such a huge figure in tech, but while they were working together and, and soon after they doubled revenue and profit. And eventually from 2011 to 2020 Cook they, he doubled the revenue and profit, and this resulted in the company's market cap increasing from 348 mil, billion to 1.9 trillion. So just a massive, massive value creation moment for the company, and really, really rare to see. I mean, at the time, I remember that people were really, really skeptical that Apple could remain innovative because obviously in their history, when Steve Jobs had left the company and been fired, it was a disaster and they had to bring him back and then he had to revitalize the company and they went through all these hard moments. But Cook came in and was able to really just accelerate everything that Apple did well, but most importantly, not screw up anything that Apple was doing on the innovative side. So, you know, he was, cri he was criticized as like, oh, he's not going to be this innovative Steve Jobs type, but he proved most of the skeptics wrong by just optimizing the business and maintaining, you know, that commitment to growth and innovation. And so he's been dedicated to fulfilling Steve Jobs' vi vision of these human computer interfaces. And obviously the iPad was a big one of those AirPods and Apple Watch became really, really successful. But Apple has actually been dabbling in virtual and augmented reality for decades. They, they even showcased a prototype headset all the way back in 1987. And it's, it's crazy. It looks like this insane 80s device. And, but they've always been thinking forward. And there's this crazy clip of Steve Jobs basically defining an iPad and to a group of students, there's only an audio recording of it, but he's talking about this device that would be super thin and light and would be connected to the internet. And this was in, I think the seventies or the eighties. And it took them decades to, to actually build the iPad and get the technology to where it is. But what, what it shows is that Apple's really, really good at just optimizing and building all of the different business functions that are necessary to then go and deliver on the technology at the right moment. And, and that's exactly what's happening with the Vision Pro headset. And so he spent, Cook spent a significant portion of his tenure exploring the potential of augmented reality. And you can see this if you go back, like he never talks about this obviously because he's very secretive and Apple as a company is very secretive, but 
there's photos of him wearing Google Glass out there, and he knows that this is going to be an important computing platform. But most importantly, he doesn't want to overhype it or overpromise. He just wants to come out with a product that's great at the right time. And so that's what it feels like just happened. Like they launched Apple Vision Pro and they basically addressed all the criticisms that people have had about VR for years. And so the reviews have been overwhelmingly positive. Obviously there's a bunch of people that are gonna say it sucks, but the people who really, really watch this stuff are, are super bullish right now. Like Palmer Lucky, the creator of Oculus, he's you know tweeting that this is the this is the headset, this is the one, this solves all the problems. It's like we're we're finally in that moment, and he's been very critical about a, a lot of VR headsets and and kind of known that this was going to take a long time. And so, what's interesting is that Cook kind of pivoted Apple's strategy when he set out to build a headset. So. A lot of Apple in the past was very focused on internal R&D, internal development, and they did a lot of that for the Apple Vision Pro headset, but they also did a ton of acquisitions, which they never really talk about, and they're always really small companies, but they first purchased this company, PrimeSense, which had figured out how to track body movements and use them to co control computers. And that, of course, is very important in the Apple Vision Pro demo. You can see that there's no controllers, you just use your hands. And then they also bought a company that could create augmented reality scenarios from scanning the world. And so that's really important to augmented reality, which we'll go into in the headset. And they also acquired like while Cook was running this program, he acquired three separate companies that were working on facial capture and analysis. And this was important because obviously the headset, you know, it tracks your eyes, it's, it, it creates a facial avatar of your face and then you can use that in Face ID. But even in the interim, they were rolling this technology out. Like he was there when Apple rolled out Face ID. And then they also use this technology in the Animoji system. So Apple has been buying these companies and integrating their technology and then actually rolling it out to consumers, gathering more data, iterating on the user experience. And that's been really, really key to setting them up for this next phase. And so this seems like a place where Cook has shifted from Jobs' original style. They don't make many acquisitions. And it's been actually great for Apple from an antitrust perspective because Meta is constantly under pressure from the FTC about building a VR monopoly. Like they just bought this really small VR company that does fitness and the FTC tried to block it because they said that they were building a VR monopoly. But clearly VR is not a, like we're still in early innings. VR is not a done deal. There's no monopoly to be built right now. And so, Cook has been able to do these smaller acquisitions that have been low profile, keep, a, keep himself out of any antitrust issues, but simultaneously roll all that technology together into a really great product. And so he's been working on this for almost a decade now, and, and it's, really con it's really contributed to the success of what we see you know, in that Apple Vision Pro demo. And so there's another factor that Cook really unlocked with the headset over his tenure. So when Cook came in, Apple was still manufacturing with a lot of different contract manufacturers. It was very expensive and they weren't deeply integrated into their supply chain. But over time, Cook 
became very deeply involved in the supply chain. Remember, he's like an operations logistics supply chain guy. And he led the charge to build the Apple Silicon, the M1, the M2 chip. He also worked with TSMC on that and then also went to China and set up these incredibly deep integrated partnerships with Foxconn to actually make custom products for pretty much everything that goes into an iPhone. And all of that is super critical to VR because you need high energy efficiency, optimal performance, low weight. These are all critical factors for a headset to be successful. And you can see that they're using these custom silicon chips to actually unlock new features in virtual reality. So one of those things is the R1 chip that allows the headset to have basically best-in-class video pass-through. And so this is something that I, when, I, when I talked to Palmer Lucky a couple weeks ago, he was saying that the future of VR and AR are the same thing because all, all VR is going to, all augmented reality is going to be reprojected, meaning that cameras on the outside of the headsets are going to capture the real world, and then just display it on high resolution screens inside the headset and you won't be able to tell the difference. And this is so much better than the alternative which you've seen with the Microsoft HoloLens and the Magic Leap. All of those, they tried to project light on top of the real world. So you'd be looking through glass, seeing the real world, and then they try and bounce a hologram off of a piece of glass so that you could see an object in the world. But that's really, really hard. It, it really fights with the laws of physics because you can't ever project something dark on top of something bright. It's just impossible to do. And so you wind up with all these really tough problems. Also, the field of view was really, really, was really small with the magic leap. When you look through it, it was cool, or the HoloLens, the same thing. It was really cool, but you could only see it in a very narrow, the direct center of your vision. But with the Apple Vision Pro, it's a VR headset, so you're seeing everything all the way to the edge of your peripheral vision, and then the outside world is brought into that headset. And so this is kind of a turning point for virtual reality. And we actually saw something similar happen with the shift from DSLR cameras with physical mirrors to mirrorless cameras. So I don't know if you remember back in the day, like a Canon 5D was like the best camera. And the way it worked was it was a digital camera. It had a sensor that captured the image when you clicked the shutter button. But when you looked through the viewfinder, there was a mirror there that that bounced the light through the lens into your eye, through the, through the viewfinder. Now, mirrorless cameras don't have that mirror that bounces the light. So they just read off the sensor and then reproject that image into the viewfinder. So there's an there's a LCD or LED display in the viewfinder. And everyone said, oh, this isn't as good. It's never going to be as good. But quickly, it became obvious that this was so much more efficient. You didn't need to have any moving parts. You didn't, the, 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 the cameras could be smaller. The sensors could get better. And so mirrorless cameras just won massively. And so the, this is really clearly a turning point for augmented reality. Like we're not going to see anyone really try to project images on glass anymore. Everything's gonna be reprojected virtual reality, which is kind of the, the future. And you can see it in the, in the demo, like there's this, there's this dinosaur demo that comes through the wall. And the only real reason that this can be blended in so seamlessly is because everything's happening in this VR environment. 
it's taking the images from the real world, reprojecting them into the headset, and then the, the, the elements can be blended in perfectly because it's all happening in this closed headset. And, and, and that's a really, really big change, and it was only made possible because Tim Cook took, he acquired all these companies, put all the technology together, and then really waited for the technology to be at a perfect point to launch. And so it's pretty clear that Tim Cook is nailing the evolution of AR and VR. Like it's all gonna be reprojected, it's all gonna be taken from a camera and placed on that screen inside the headset. But there are a bunch of other things that, that he's doing to make this headset actually work and be functional. The, the big problem that he's trying to solve here is that VR headsets have been out for a decade, but they always just collect dust. People buy them, and every time it's Christmas, you can see that the Oculus app is the most downloaded app in the App Store, but very quickly people stop turning them on. And it's because they're clunky and they're difficult to use. Like when you use an Oculus and you're pointing with this, with this hand controller, it's really, your hand has all these micro jitters, it's really shaky. This, like Cook recognized that that was never going to get to the point that it needed for actual real adoption and regular daily use. So he focused on switching to eye tracking. And of course, he built up a huge repertoire of, of skills and engineers and technologies that could, that could do these eye tracking because of the face ID and the Animoji stuff and all the companies that he acquired. And so this provides the user with a more intuitive way to interact. Like the eyes are incredibly precise. You just look where you want and then you can just tap with your fingers to actually click. And all of this means that it's a much, much more mellow experience. And this is, this is really important because so much of Oculus, like their number one app is Beat Saber. It's this really high motion app. You're swiping with these lightsabers. It's a ton of physical effort and you get tired. You're standing up, you're walking around, like room scale VR was a big trend for a while. People wanted to walk around, but that's not something that people are gonna do on a daily basis. And we'll go into like kind of the, the, the workplace element of this in a little bit, but people just want to sit on the couch. Like that's why the PlayStation 5 is so popular is because you can just sit there with your controller in your lap, play the game, and it's very, very mellow and relaxed. And you can do that for hours and hours and hours. And that's the same thing that's happening with the Apple Vision Pro. You just look where you want to click and then you just click with your hands while they're sitting in your lap and the camera picks it up and everything just works. So it's much, much lower intensity and that's really important to these to these products like they need to be seamless and and just mellow experiences and so cook's focus on really nailing the supply chain has been absolutely critical to getting this to work like they have the highest resolution cameras the the resolution on the screen is twice what the next best headset is. It's like three or four times what Meta is putting out right now. I think it's 24 megapixels across both screens, which is a ton. And then most importantly, they have this R1 chip, which is again, Apple's custom silicon, which they can do because they have these partnerships with TSMC and they make their own chips now. And they this ensures smooth and uninterrupted operation. So one of the most annoying things about using a meta headset is that every once in a while there's a glitch in the system and everything just freezes and then you move your head and the world doesn't move and you immediately get sick. It's really, really jarring. So Apple built this real-time operating system that runs in the background and does this reprojection process 
constantly in real time. And then whatever program you're running runs on a separate system on the M2 chip. And so if you're running a program and you get the spinning wheel of death and it's, you know, it, it's lagging or you have too many Chrome tabs open or whatever, that won't matter because at the very least that R1 chip is still processing your, your, the world around you, still keeping the headset running and the programs might halt or they might run into problems, but that's not gonna gum up the entire system. And this is really one of Apple's key differentiators that they can do. And Meta's really gonna struggle to keep up with this because they're building on top of Android and they have a lot of limitations in what they can do at the kind of operating system level. And so another great thing that Tim Cook is so focused on is he hasn't hurt the culture of amazing user interface design at all. Like Apple has always been known for these beautiful interfaces that are very intuitive and easy to use. And there's this really funny thing that always goes viral on Twitter. It's this screenshot of the SMS authentication, like two-factor code that pops up when you go to do a two-factor authentication on a website. And it'll just show up on your keyboard and it autofills. And anytime someone tweets this, it goes mega viral because everyone loves this thing. And it's just an incredible attention to detail that again, it was launched under Tim Cook's rule or tenure. And, and it shows that they haven't, there's Apple still creates space for people to go and create these little delightful experiences. And that's actually really, really important. Like that's that SMS authentication two-factor code, it's so silly and so minor, but it's really, really important for VR and when you're wearing a headset, and I'll explain why. Like with Meta, I have like seven passwords. I have a Facebook password, an Instagram password, a Meta password now, an Oculus password, and then I think I also have an Oculus pin in case I wanna buy something from the store, and then I also have an Oculus like it's like a shape that I can draw to log in. And I don't remember any of them. It's really, really hard Two password managers don't work in VR yet. Like they probably will never work, but Apple is super, super focused on these amazing user experiences. So that facial recognition company that Tim Cook acquired, like they're going to be able to just scan your eyes and know that it's you log you in immediately. And the other great thing is that the pass through on this device is so good that you can just pull out your phone and actually use it. When you're using a meta, like a quest, you, if you pull out your phone, you have to slide the headset up, slide it down, slide it up, look at the get the code, get the password. It's really, really difficult, but you know that Apple's just going to solve this and that's going to reduce churn significantly. Like the biggest problem with, with the Quest and these other VR headsets is that people just stop putting them on because they have, they, they pick it up after a while and, oh, it's not charged. Well, the Apple one's just going to be plugged in because the battery pack's right there and, and, oh, you're not logged in. Or I remember one time I, I, I upgraded from one quest to the next and all of a sudden all the games that I purchased on one were gone and it was just extremely bad user experience. And that's because that, like Apple just takes it so much more seriously. Now there's a big question about where this Vision Pro headset will sit in the world of Apple devices. Everyone is obsessed with VR gaming because that's kind of the logical conclusion. Obviously you have this 3D immersive world, you should be able to walk around, do all this crazy stuff. But I think that's missing the 
initial go-to market that Cook is thinking about. So obviously people are really upset about the price. It's really expensive, $3,500. That's a lot of money, especially for a device that's probably gonna be out of date in a year. But it's really not that much money when you compare it to other Apple products that it kind of competes against. Like I don't think of this as a replacement for an iPhone, certainly. And it's not even a replacement for a MacBook. It's more like a replacement for an Apple Pro Display XDR. And that display is $6,000, but people buy them all the time because they use them for work. And so if they can just get using this device as an extra screen, right? People are going to buy this thing, no problem. And so People already spend thousands of dollars on TVs and multi-monitor setups. I use three monitors regularly. I really enjoy having a lot of screen space. And so if the Apple Vision Pro can just deliver on that or just replace your TV, I think that $3,500 is not gonna be that crazy. And of course, this is already positioned as a pro model. So there's they've, they've given themselves room to launch just a normal Apple Vision at a more reasonable price, but they don't really have to. Like they're clearly, like Tim Cook has actually, he's talked to Elon, he's been in a couple meetings with him and they met up during kind of the Twitter acquisition process. And it's very clear that Apple's kind of running Tesla's strategy with the Roadster. Like Tesla came to market with the Tesla Roadster. It was super expensive, but it was a functional product and it proved the concept. Like it showed that electric cars could be fun, fast, affordable and usable. And this is kind of the same idea. And so, you know, we'll probably get a Model S version of the Vision at some point. And at that point, there will be an ecosystem and infrastructure. And that was really key to the Tesla Model X, Model S success was that the supercharger network was already out there. People knew how to service these things. They were more comfortable using them. Some people already had wall chargers in their garages. And so once enough people have you know, been using the Apple Vision Pro, then that kind of opens up the opportunity for, for cheaper headsets down market. And so there's another interesting thing about their Apple, about their pricing, which is that, you know, Tim Cook is this like dollars and cents guy. He's driven huge profitability gains at Apple. And you can see that this headset, the Apple Vision Pro is 10 times the price of a Meta Quest headset but it's also gonna be way more profitable because of that. Like Apple is not gonna sell this thing at a, at a loss. They just don't do that and they don't need to. And they, and so they're, the current estimates, Apple's kind of, it feels like they're sandbagging a little bit on the, on the volume estimates. They're, they're saying that they might sell under a million dollar, under a million units next year. And Meta sells millions of Quest units annually. I think the number was like 7 million. But Apple is gonna sell one-tenth the number of headsets, but they're gonna make 10 times the amount of profit. So they'll probably wind up with just as profitable of a business pretty, pretty quickly. And this is really important to the way Tim Cook runs Apple. Like he, he is thinking about sustainable investment, growth, profitability, and actually running a, a functional business that doesn't have this massive financial burden. Like Meta has been really dragged by the financial community because of this massive investment in Reality Labs, but the Apple Vision Pro, it's probably just gonna be a small accessories line item for a while, and then once it starts 
contributing, then they can invest more, iterate, and grow it. But it won't be a huge drag on their financials, which is very important for the way Cook runs this company. And it's also important because I think everyone knows that even though this is like this important moment in VR and we're finally seeing a headset that kind of delivers on the initial promise and might actually be used for more than a few times before it starts collecting dust, these things are going to take time to build out. So gaming is obviously something that Tim Cook is very focused on winning in the long term. Like in the same keynote that he that he announced the Apple Vision Pro, he also announced he had Hideo Kojima, the creator of Metal Gear Solid, on giving a presentation about how developers should port their games to Mac. And they're building all these different tools to allow game developers to bring their games to the Mac. But the real end goal here is building not just Metal Gear Solid that's ported over to, to you know, Apple. We want to build a amazing game from the ground up for VR that takes advantage of all of the amazing things that you can do only in VR. Just porting games isn't really going to be the, the, the massive unlock that people think it will be. So it's important for Apple to get these smaller niche use cases right, just like using VR headsets for extra screens or while traveling or watching movies on planes, expand the user base and then let developers turn loose and go and build something crazy that you can actually spend 10, 20, 100 hours in. And, and that was most people's experience with, with gaming was they fell in love with a game like Final Fantasy, which you could play for 100 hours, or GTA. And it'll be a while until we get those. Meta's been investing a ton in this, but they haven't really been able to find a game developer who can build a you know amazing game that takes dozens of hours and people just get obsessed with. But Tim Cook is thinking about how to deliver great content in the interim. Like before those crazy VR games get developed, that's gonna be years away, but people obviously want entertainment in the headset right now and they wanna test out a lot of things. And so one of the demos that everyone really loved at the WWDC presentation was they let you put on the headset and then you were sitting courtside at an NBA game. And everyone loved this and the interesting thing here is that unlike developing games, capturing and streaming existing content like live NBA games is really, really easy because the content already exists, like the NBA already exists. And the, and the entertaining part is the drama of these NBA players duking it out to win a game. Like the, the actual entertainment is already there. You're just consuming it in a different way. And Cook has a bunch of experience with content. Like, when during the Steve Jobs era, Apple didn't really do much content, but since Cook took over, he's launched the Apple streaming service, which is the first real content production effort for them. And it's going pretty well. I think they've already won like nine Emmys and they're taking this VR capture very seriously. They're actually creating a new specification called the Apple Interactive Immersive Video Format. And it's gonna be like its own MP4 and MOV file. And you're gonna need a custom camera rig to capture these 3D videos. And this is another place where, uh, where Cook is leveraging Apple's unique capabilities. Like Meta tried to build their own operating system for VR and it was a disaster. They had these two teams running side by side, building two different operating systems. One was called VROS and the other was XROS. And they eventually went with Android and it's just a completely different strategy from Apple. Apple is 
is big enough and has all of these incredible connections where they can actually define a new format for video that will deliver the highest quality content for their headset. And then they can just kind of force everyone to do it. And obviously, you know, it won't be too difficult to set up these cameras at NBA games and other, other events and stream them. Apple obviously has a ton of connections. I think they already own all the rights to MLS, so it'd be very logical that they'd be able to, you know, put their their three VR 3D capture technology on the field there. You can imagine this being really, really cool for watching a F1 race. You could actually be sitting in the cockpit of the car or something like that. It's gonna get really, really interesting. And obviously there's a ton of opportunity to repurpose existing content like Avatar, which is in 3D, but you can only really get the full experience in an IMAX theater with 3D glasses. And once it goes out of the theater, your TV is not just not going to do the trick. So you put on the glasses and the Apple Vision Pro will be able to kind of take you back to that theater experience. And that's going to be really, 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 really powerful. And Cook understands partnerships. Like in the keynote, he had Bob Iger on stage, like the CEO of Disney. And that's just a huge differentiator. And that'll allow for just much deeper integration with these big content companies and allow them to do what they do best, which is create the great content. And then Apple will be able to actually bring this to the headset and provide like really, really high quality experiences. And, and of course they'll open up an app store and there'll be tons of you know content in the future, but they're going to launch with some really, really, really important anchor clients. Cook also highlighted the value of kind of capturing your own moments and then being being able to relive them. And this was a piece that people hated. It was super dystopian because you had this dad who had filmed his kids at their birthday and he was reliving the moment, but he was alone. And it kind of felt like he was this divorced dad. And it, it was just very, very awkward. And of course, if you want to capture the 3D video that you can watch later in the headset, you need to be wearing the headset. And that's super, super awkward. Like no one wants to be walking around at a birthday party wearing this headset. That's just going to be super weird. But it's pretty clear that this, the technology to capture this 3D content is going to be available on iPhones pretty soon. Like the, the, the distance between your eyes is about the same as the length of an iPhone. So they might have to figure out how to put one camera on one side of the phone and then another camera on the other, at the, at the other end of the phone. But clearly within a couple cycles, you're going to be able to capture this VR content with your phone. And people are already taking tons of videos of their kids. You'll be able to have the 3D video and then watch it in the headset later. And, th and that feels like a much less dystopian, <laughs> much more optimistic scenario and, and kind of outcome. So I, I, I think that's definitely going to happen, but probably not until the, the Vision Pro is selling millions of units. So it'll be a couple cycles of the, of the iPhone until that really happens. Now, clearly one of the places that Cook has been most successful is in bringing Apple to the enterprise. And no one really talks about this because everyone likes the consumer products and the Apple Watch is fun to talk about, but Apple has been growing like crazy in the enterprise. Tons of companies have rolled out Apple devices to basically every employee. It used to just be used in creative you know, scenarios, people using Photoshop and, and Final Cut Pro, but now basically everyone wants a Mac at work. And this obviously was helped by the, by the iPhone. People 
got business users got iPhones and then they demanded Apple products to fit into their ecosystem. And it's only been getting better because of Cook's plan to launch the M1. So the M1 chip obviously is super efficient. And so the the price to value is just incredible with that product. So if a, com if a company gives an employee an M1 Mac, they really can't complain about performance. Like you can do pretty much anything on that computer, video editing, 3D stuff, machine learning, like everything kind of works on the computer. Apple has been really successful at growing into the enterprise and they've launched some crazy expensive products. So the $3,500 price point isn't that crazy for this headset if you think that it can be a work device. And after Cook took over for Steve Jobs, he really expanded Apple's lineup and started pushing to really, really high price points. Like they, he launched that Mac Pro that was $60,000 if you spec'd it out fully. Obviously we talked about the Apple Display, uh, Apple Pro Display XDR, which is $6,000. He also launched the Apple Watch Edition, which was $10,000 just for a custom color essentially. I think it was gold plated. And that was a very different strategy from Steve Jobs. Like Steve Jobs was very focused on you know, these products, yes, they came in expensive. Obviously the first iPhone was expensive, but he was a little bit more focused on driving down the price. Whereas Cook has recognized that there are a lot of Apple fans out there that will pay pretty much anything. And so price discrimination makes sense. And remember, Cook is this dollars and cents guy. He wants to build the biggest business possible. And that means offering really expensive products to people who want them. And that's pretty simple. And so Cook is clearly focused on Apple Vision Pro being used as a work device. The ability to extend the display onto multiple monitors or large screens while traveling with just a laptop is clearly a standout feature for professionals who rely on Mac computers. And many people already invest in expensive multi-monitor setups. I have three monitors and this is super useful when you're writing or programming or really doing anything that requires serious focused work. And throwing on a headset and being able to have unlimited monitors is going to be a real killer use case if it's comfortable and it works well and the fidelity is high. And that's really key to why they launched it now. They launched this product now because the resolution is finally high enough that there's no screen door effect. You can read text. You can actually use this product for a long time. But Cook is also changing the culture of Apple a little bit with this launch. Like, it was very interesting watching the launch on Twitter because for the first time I saw Apple employees tweeting about how they'd worked on this product. And it's kind of crazy because we'd gotten a lot of leaks about this headset and they'd obviously patented a ton of different things. But they never really leaked what the actual product was. People didn't really have it fully dialed in until just a few weeks before. And there were still a lot of surprises and, and the reviews were definitely above what people's expectations were. And so it's clear that, that Steve Jobs wanted to run a super secretive operation and not really let, I, I think they didn't even let employees have social media profiles at the time and Apple, they have a Twitter account, but they don't really tweet. They promote tweets, but they, they, they really, really don't. They don't go direct. They don't do a lot of unscripted interviews. Tim Cook does, you know, an interview with Good Morning America every once in a while, but he's not the type of guy like Mark Zuckerberg to just go on Joe Rogan and talk 
freely for hours and hours and hours. It's all very calculated. But with this launch, a lot of these employees were able to talk about everything they built. And even some of the people that worked on the on the keynote presentation, we were able to talk about the CGI that they used or, or how, they, how they designed the presentation, which was very, very interesting to see. But at the same time, there were a few things that were kind of absent from this presentation that we might have expected to see. We didn't see any Apple executives actually wearing the headset. And a lot of people think that was deliberate because it can look a little awkward to wear a headset and it has really high meme potential and you know you don't want some meme to kind of take over the news story. This happened with Zuckerberg when they gave everyone in the crowd at this launch event headsets. They had them all put them on and then he walked down the aisle without a headset on and there's this photo of him in front of a crowd of people wearing headsets and it just looks ridiculously awkward. And it just became a very, very negative meme and, and kind of made the, the whole initiative look like a joke. And so Apple clearly has thought that through this incredibly thoughtfully. But one thing that I think they kind of mix, missed was they didn't focus on the social aspect at all. And, you know, going back to that, that video of the dad looking at his kids, he's kind of alone. And this is something where Meta has really focused on the social use case. And it makes sense because obviously it's a social network and, and Zuck is very focused on, on recognizing that VR is probably the next major computing platform, but social being an important piece of that platform. And so Apple approaches the use of their devices, including the headset, with like a broader perspective. They, 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 do, they do facilitate connections through the phones. Obviously, the iPhone is a phone. You use it to call people. You're texting people all day long. But at the end of the day, it's more of just a device that you can do anything in. They, now, they did introduce this, this thing called SharePlay that allows the users of the Apple Vision Pro to use it alongside someone else. But it's clear that they really haven't figured it out yet. And they know that people just aren't going to be buying this device in the quantities that will make sense for multiple people to use it. Like, I, I want two of these so that I can sit in my house next to my wife and watch something with her. So it's more of like a social experience. And when you think about that NBA game, the courtside seats, that makes a lot of sense if you're sitting next to a friend and not just in complete isolation. But overall, Cook is very focused on just doing what works and running the Apple playbook. Like Steve Jobs laid down a great playbook for what Apple does best. And he's been ruthlessly executing against that for a decade. And you see this in the name, Apple Vision Pro. It fits directly into the rest of the Apple ecosystem. And you contrast that to what Facebook is doing with Meta and you have so much confusion over there between Oculus, Quest, Meta, all these different brand names that don't really speak to everything. Apple Vision Pro, you get it in two seconds. It's an Apple product. Vision relates to both the vision for the future of computing, but also the fact that this goes on your eyes and it acts as a vision device. And then Pro obviously fits right into their lineup of AirPods Pro, MacBook Pro, iPad Pro, et cetera. And so the iPad 
it was initially thought to have multiple use cases. Like when Jobs came out and presented the iPad, he was highlighting web browsing, email, viewing photos, watching videos, listening to music, playing games, reading eBooks. He really like, he wanted to introduce the product as broadly as possible. But over the following years, there was really only one use case that actually took off for iPads, which is just watching video, mostly streaming services. Like people use it to watch Netflix basically. But it was still a significant use case and the iPad is a successful product. And so we'll probably see something similar happen with the Apple Vision Pro. It'll come out and there'll be a bunch of different ideas and things that people test. And then there'll be this doubling down process once they figure it out. Same thing happened when Tim Cook launched the Apple Watch. The original Apple Watch was positioned as maybe it's a health device, maybe it's for your notifications, maybe there'll be an app store and you can play games on it and all these different things. And people had these really big expectations. Could this be the next iPhone? Are we just gonna use our Apple Watches? And at the end of the day, it just became a fitness device. But that's still great. It's a $10 billion business and it's, it's doing fantastically. And so I think that what we'll see with the Apple Vision Pro headset is that you know Tim Cook is going to introduce this as a productivity tool or a device for content consumption and then over time refine the product offering into what it does best. And so this is a key question for Tim Cook's legacy. Like, does he need an iPhone type outcome in order to cement his legacy as Apple's CEO? And it's kind of unclear. Right now, I don't think it's reasonable to say that the Apple Vision Pro is going to you know, disrupt the iPhone in any near-term scenario. It's going to take time. Like The device is expensive and it isn't going to sell like crazy. Apple sold 225 million iPhones last year and they're only estimating that they're going to sell less than a million Vision Pros next year. So it's going to take time. But the bigger question is obviously this technology is going to change the way people interact with each other. It's going to change the way people interact with technology. There's a whole bunch of questions about how artificial intelligence fits into this. And the question I want to answer is, is, you know, is Tim Cook a good steward for this technology? Typically, when we see these new technology waves come, there's usually a founder CEO driving the initiative. And, and for a long time, it's been Zuck with the meta quest and all that. And before that, it was Palmer Lucky. And obviously, we, we've seen this with electric cars and Elon and space travel and Elon and a lot of other a lot of uh, other big tech trends. And what we see with OpenAI and Sam Altman is, you know, we see this, this maniacal founder driving this technology forward. But here we kind of have a narrative violation where this non-founder Tim Cook might be the one who kind of shapes the next era of virtual reality, which is going to be very, very interesting to watch. And there's there's a legitimate concern about, you know, if this technology is just driven by optimization, maximize usage time, maximize revenue, make sure everyone has one and make sure everyone's spending as much time as possible. Like, will this reduce social interaction? Will this increase isolation? And Zuck has been dedicated to encouraging social interaction through all of Meta's VR products. And it's very clear that he has a vision for the future of the world that's not completely isolated. You know, Meta's whole mission is to create community and bring people together and increase connectivity. And 
that's not really the Apple model. And it'll be interesting to see how Tim Cook grapples with these problems as they come up. You can see in the keynote earlier, they had a bunch of pieces in the presentation about reducing screen time and making sure kids aren't using these devices too much. And there's going to be a big question about, you know, are we going to wind up in a ready player one scenario? And is that good or bad for society? You know, the hope is that the headsets can be used effectively. You know, you want to maintain meaningful connections with real humans and increase happiness, but you also want to benefit from VR technology. And obviously there's been a ton of dystopian media around this stuff. I, you know, the, the moment where the guy is wearing the Apple Vision Pro headset and he's looking at the video of his kids, it looks exactly like the scene from Minority Report where Tom Cruise is reliving this, this holographic memory of his, of his child who's passed away, which is super, super depressing and, and, and very dystopian. And then obviously Black Mirror had that episode, The Entire History of You, where you could relive any moment and it creates you know, all sorts of problems for the society. And there's even this great, this great short film by Mark Osborne called More, where this guy who's a very creative inventor uses his like last creativity, like the last element of his soul to, to create this virtual reality device that he puts on and it just is total rose colored glasses. Everything just looks amazing. And, and of course they sell a ton of them, but then he's realized that he's kind of given up his humanity. And, you know, obviously the matrix is a more extreme version of this, but there's one, there's one really interesting short story that I think everyone should read right now, which is St Stanley Weinbaum's Pygmalion's Spectacles. It was, it's a science fiction short story that came out in like 1935. And basically there's this revolutionary device called Pygmalion Spectacles. And they offer a fully immersive virtual reality experience. You put it on and you're in a completely different world. And the, the main character, this guy, Dan Burke, receives the spectacles from this guy, Ludwig, and tries them on. And he becomes completely obsessed and engrossed in this realistic and captivating virtual world. And while he's in the world, he encounters this woman, Angela, who's a virtual woman, like an artificial intelligence, and he falls in love with her. And, you know, Ludwig warns Dan about the dangers of losing touch with reality, but Dan just becomes increasingly obsessed with this virtual woman, Angela. And eventually the story kind of ends with Dan deciding to leave his physical body and permanently reside in the virtual world. And so he merges with the virtual reality and leaves his loved one behind and everyone's very sad. And, you know, the story, you know, it, it explores the themes of escapism and the blurred line between reality and fantasy. Like what really is reality if you're in this virtual reality and it's so real, maybe that is your reality. And it's all, it's all very worrisome and, and questionable. And, and obviously everyone is going to be talking about the impact of, you know, virtual reality becoming an actual thing that everyone's using regularly over the next few years. And there will be a, a, a huge cultural impact. But I'm actually optimistic about how all this will play out. First off, it'll be a novelty for quite some time. Like the battery life is limited and you just won't want to wear this thing 24 seven. And then after it really becomes prevalent, it's still just going to replace other screen time. Like if you're sitting at a computer spending eight hours a day staring at a multi-monitor setup, there isn't much difference in putting on a headset and doing that. I, I don't see that that's going to be a change that completely rewires and erodes our society. 
But obviously, there's always a risk that this becomes addictive, and there is a real risk of what people call wireheading, where you know you're just completely immersed in this virtual world and and completely optimized for maximum pleasure at all times. And obviously, this ties with the AI stuff. But I think that there's always a countervailing force. Like as soon as people, as soon as everyone starts to do one thing, people naturally want to try the alternative. You know, there are people today that live without phones. There are plenty of people that have healthy relationships with social media. And there are also people that, you know, resist the temptation of alcohol. As soon as something becomes clear that it's having a negative effect, there's, there's a counter movement. And this is something that humans just naturally do. So if addictive VR experiences wind up yielding negative outcomes and our society can just process that and realize that, oh, there's a group of people that are off completely immersed in VR and they're completely disconnected, there will be a natural incentive to resist that and use the technology in a more healthy way. So I'm super optimistic about this. And obviously there will be problems and we'll need to work through them and adapt to them. And we don't want to end up trapped in a virtual world, but we can always choose to go a different direction. Like you can just choose to take this thing off. Um, and I and I want to bring it back to Tim Cook at the end because there's a big question about like, is he the right leader for the virtual reality future? Like Zuck is clearly focused on human interaction in VR. Like Meta's mission is to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. He really cares about this stuff deeply. And Cook, on the other hand, you know, he's not this, he's not this messianic founder. He's known for being solitary, but he's not completely obsessed with technology either. Like he's a fitness enthusiast. He loves hiking and cycling and going to the gym. He clearly doesn't spend all of his time inside on a computer. He's not some obsessive like that. But most importantly, I'm, I'm optimistic about him working through these issues because he's just deeply empathetic. Like, in, 20, in 2009, after Steve Jobs had been diagnosed with cancer, Cook actually offered to donate a portion of his liver to Jobs. The two of them, like they shared a rare blood type and it could have potentially helped Jobs live a bit longer. And Jobs rejected the offer and said that he'd never let Tim Cook do that. But I think the exchange shows the character of Tim Cook. Like he, at his core, he is deeply human. And I think he'll be a good steward of this technology as our world gets more and more complex. Thanks for listening.